Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. Here I am, pod you like a hurricane. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Kevin. How are you? I am really good. Um, I'm enjoying the fact that the uh, British climate has decided to not um, ape the Kalahari Desert. So, you know. Or the centre of the fucking sun. Well, yeah, you know, so I, either one. Like, yeah. Living in Northern England, I'm not expecting um, it being so hot I can barely move. It's getting warm again next week, though, mate. So, you know. Fucking shite. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so it's the next clash in our uh, live season. Uh, your choices, Kev. What are we doing? Indeed. So we are doing the ba- battle of two beer moths, really. So mm. uh, to continue our theme from uh, from the previous clash. So it's the Rolling Stones 1970 Get Your Yar Yars Out versus the seminal uh, Live at Leeds by The Who. And what are the connections? I mean, they're both live albums. They both were recorded in 1970. And, well, you can choose whether you're going to edit this out or not. Um, the, there is also a potential non-soft. <laughs> Alleged nonsense. Well, Bill Wyman definitely married a 13-year-old. Well, no, 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 no. We'll come on to Bill Wyman in a bit, but she was not 13 when they married. No, but he definitely met her when she was yes. 13. Indeed. And Pete, where's the book? <laughs> you were doing research, apparently. So where, where is it? Uh, let's come back to that in a couple of weeks' time, shall we? <laughs> uh, there is something else that connects them, actually. Um, the, so the same Rolling Stones live bootleg album, Liver Than You'll Ever Be, connects both albums so Indeed. that was the reason as i'll come on to that was the reason why get yeah yeah out was released and the cover of live at leeds was inspired by the cover of live at the Never Be. indeed because it as as i'm sure you will come on to it is a it was a legendary boot like the that mm. influenced all like sort of live albums going forward for, for quite yeah. a while it, indeed, it did. Uh, but yeah, I will come on to that shortly. Uh, before I do, however, it's can't get you out of my head time. Kev, any shite? Yes. Oh, go on. <laughs> that was a very definitive yes. I am back with the shite. Go on. So, as, you, as regular listeners are well aware that I, I am prone to scrolling through, through Twitter and finding various bits and bobs. Mm-hmm. So, for some reason this week, Malky Mackay had popped up. <laughs> I'm going somewhere with this. Popped up on, like, a tweet that I saw. And because my brain works the way it does, my brain went, Malky Mackay, it remembered the song that the Cardiff fans sang, which was Don't Sack Mackay, Malky Mackay, which was to the tune of Achy Breaky Heart by Billy Ray Cyrus. So that's what's been in my head. And now it's in mine. Thanks yeah, very much. No problem. And <laughs> um, all the talent in that family definitely went to the daughter. <laughs> yes, without question. And better hair choices as well. Uh, very much so, yes, indeed. And I don't think uh, that Billy Ray would have looked good riding a wrecking ball uh, in the nuddy. I mean, we don't know. 
<laughs> Very true. We don't know. I am speculating. <laughs> he could have looked like Robert Patrick in uh, the start of Terminator 2. <laughs> or um, Death from Bill and Ted at the start of Die Hard 2. <laughs> yeah, Doing naked Tai Chi. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Have you got any shite? <laughs> no, I don't. No shite for me this week. So uh, what's your good stuff? What do you want to give a shout okay, to? Okay, I am going to bring something new to the table. So a band that we have previously discussed before. In fact, we've done one of their albums before. Quite an enjoyable one because uh, Tim got very annoyed by what it was clashing against. So Hot Chip, a band that we both really enjoy. Uh, they've got a new album coming out in a, well, a couple of weeks. So on the 19th of August, which is called... Uh, freak out uh, release the like the single from it that's been released is called down and it is a brilliant piece of classic hot chip funky electro all things good can confirm i have heard it it is boss yeah <laughs> all the good things yeah absolutely so i'm also going with something new and uh, I'm going to give a shout out to the song Escape, which is the debut single from Manchester indie five-piece Pastel. It is a massive, massive 90s indie throwback, Kev. So you're talking Ride, you're talking early Verve stuff, you're talking early Charlatan stuff. As we know, despite my varied uh, musical tastes, I am at heart an indie boy, so... Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who's listened to us before knows that whilst we have delved into other musical genres, we are both indie boys at heart, and that sounds all the good things as well. It's really good. You'll like it a lot. Uh, the the B-side is a track called Isaiah. That's almost as good. In fact, if possibly even better. They're really good. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing more from them. Good stuff, good stuff. Brilliant. Okay, uh, with that then... Shall we do some top trumps of Get Your Yaya's Out and Live at Leeds? Yeah, let's get, let's get on it. I'm not so sure on this one. I, I'm not feeling overly confident, but uh, let's see how we go. Uh, so I won last time because um, you didn't have anything really for Bowie. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't a whitewash, so you know. It was not a whitewash, indeed. Uh, so I'm just going to go in the traditional order. I will start with sales. Get Your Yaya's Out sold in excess of 1 million copies worldwide. So Live at Leeds had at least 2.1 million confirmed sales worldwide. Something that I'm, def- that I'm definitely not just reading off wiki. <laughs> <clears throat> right, okay, go on, you go next. Um, certifications. Yeah. UK Gold. I'm not talking about the TV channel. <laughs> US, two times platinum. All right, so I've got single platinum in the US. I've got silver in the UK, which I didn't even know was a thing until now, but okay. there you go. Uh, and gold in Canada. But uh, So I have certifications in more countries, but you have a double platinum in there. So what are we saying? I'm, I'm happy to call that a draw because you've, you've got more certifications Fine. in different countries. Sound. That's a draw then. Okay. Uh, it's still your honour though. Okay, so charts... Highest position, number three in the UK, number four on the billboard. Oh, so I've got number one in the UK, but number six on the billboard chart. So I think that's another draw, isn't it? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. It's still your honour. 
<laughs> it's, 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 so we're three categories in and it's only one nil. It's all to play for. It really is. Um, maybe I was too kind in my, cho- in my choice. Maybe to- you were. Yeah, but you know, I'm not as petty as you and need the victory. I, I don't need the victory. I just revel in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'll go with accolades. So it's ranked 170 on the Rolling Stones uh 500 Greatest Albums of All Time in 2003, stayed at 170 uh, in 2012, dropped to 327 in 2020. It's also got a blue plaque, so fuck (laughs) you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I have no blue plaque because I don't think blue plaques are a thing in the States, although, you know, Madison Square Garden, so... Fuck you as well. <laughs> um, uh, I have no placement on the Rolling Stone top 500 list. The best I can do is in 2017, Q named it as the 14th greatest live album of all times. The NME named it as the seventh greatest live album in the same year. And Colin Larkin, um, who we still don't know who he is, but in his book of the best 1,000 albums, he listed Get the EIRs Out as number 816. So uh, you have won that one. Yeah, and it, live at Lee's was three five six on um, Philip's brother, brother's <laughs> list. Pops, lad. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back with the obscure nineties TV references. Well, yeah, I'm sure uh, Philip Larkin would have preferred it if it was recorded in Hull. <laughs> hey, look, we're getting poetry in here as well. <laughs> Highbrow. Yeah. Uh, right, there's two categories to go, and I'll tell you straight off, I have no awards won for Get Your Yaya's Out, so... So there's no awards uh, here either. Right, so you've won, uh, but sh- just for posterity, shall we do the critic scores? Yeah, so uh, all music? Yep. Five stars? Four and a half stars. Unfortunately, I do have Chris Gow's record guide. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I've got Nobby's reviews for both albums, so don't worry about that. Okay. All right, I'll go with Mojo, uh, who gave it five. I have no rating from Mojo. Uh, the other, the other what, ones... what have you got? So, the other ones I have, Rolling Stone, four out of five. Five. Fuck off. Q, four out of five. Four out of five as well. Okay. Enemy, seven out of ten. Don't have an enemy... Um... Rating and I've got uncut four out of five, four out of five as well. So I'd say no, so you've got a five from Rolling Stone and a five from All Music, and I don't. So you have won that one. So okay, I have been tonked three nil. There we go. So who the who are victorious this time? But for this time, but we'll see where they come in the only uh, the only category that matters, and that is our scores. Indubitably. So I I love the fact that I'm now literally after every time we do top trumps, I'm saying that the last three minutes of the listeners' time was a complete waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, then again, the entire show is. A complete well, I was waste about to say, if we pull on that thread enough, then basically. <laughs> Like the entire hour that they're going to spend <laughs> listening to our waffling. Kev, as if this show is going to be 60 minutes long. Fucking hell. No chance. The last no, time you and I did a here. show, it was 60. Oh, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well done. You've won top trumps. Uh, let's see if the Who can sustain that victory in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, however, shall I start taking us through? Get your yayas out. Yeah, let's do it. Right, okay. So, 
The Rolling Stones, Get Your Yaya's Out, was recorded over three shows from the 26th to the 28th of November 1969 at the Baltimore Civic Center on the 26th of November 69. And as I alluded to a second ago, Madison Square Garden, uh, two shows on the 27th and 28th of November 69. They also had some overdubbing sessions which were undertaken in January 1970 in London's Olympic Studios. Apparently the Finnish album uh, featured an overdubbed lead vocal on every track apart from Love in Vain and Midnight Rambler, added backup vocals on three tracks, and there was overdubbed guitar parts on both Little Queenie and Stray Cat Blues. So... Mm. Uh, 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 a slight spoiler for a couple of weeks' time. Get your yayas out. It's going to lose some points for me for not being a full live album. Yeah, interesting, that. Because, yeah, the, I mean, the, I think it's fairly common, and obviously it's something that comes up, will come up in two weeks' time, mm. that, you know, people do go back and enhance the sound, but there's quite a lot of work that's gone on afterwards. Yes, absolutely. But, yeah, we, we will talk about it in a couple of weeks' time because there is a particular guitar part that, unless Pete Townsend has mastered the art of bending space and time, uh, was definitely overdubbed later on. Or he may have been an octopus. <laughs> Don't get that, but I don't care. Well, he's got, like, if he was an octopus, then he would have several limbs in order to play several guitars at no, the same time. No, I'm talking time. about there's a distinctive backwards guitar part, and I get, like, so, no. I think an octopus <laughs> could do that. <laughs> Paul the octopus. Yeah. <laughs> Not only is he psychic, he's fucking great on a guitar. <laughs> on a backwards guitar. <laughs> he's also dead. Well, is that because he was walking across a crossing without any shoes on? <laughs> Nice. Excellent. Well done. Because that works on multiple levels with the backwards <laughs> guitar. Excellent stuff. I'm going to applaud that. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Back to the Rolling Stones. So the album was released on the 4th of September 1970 on Decca Records in the UK and London Records in the US. It was produced by the Rolling Stones themselves and Glyn Johns. So, um, for people who've watched the Get Back uh, documentary, uh, Glyn Johns is the producer who is in Get Back because he was on on producing duties for the Abbey Road and Let It Be sessions. Uh, he was on engineering duties for those sessions. Um, Sorry, he didn't. Uh, famously, of course, because he did not. Because George produce, Martin, yeah, well, yes. and famously, not even George Martin didn't end up producing "Let It Be." Um, well, yeah, we'll come on to. <laughs> we're going to do that one day. Yeah, we we do need to do that because well, it just it will allow us to talk about a murderer again. <laughs> to be clear, George Martin is not a murderer. The person who produced "Let It Be" is. Check out our uh, delightful Christmas episode. <laughs> well, and our, and our first ever clash in which we oh, go indeed, through yeah. um, the uh, George Harrison album, All Things Must Pass. Anyway, <laughs> can we get back to the album we're doing now? Well, can't reciting, it's, this isn't a clip show. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? Next time we have a bit of a break, I'm going to do a clip show. <laughs> I'm not. I can't be asked. No. <laughs> <clears throat> anyway. I do actually have some interesting stuff to talk about in terms of the background to the album, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. So the Stones hadn't played live in the US since 1966. They hadn't toured anywhere at all since 67. By the time that they released Beggar's Banquet in 68, Brian Jones was 
basically in no state to make any real contribution to what the band was was doing due to his increasing problems with substance abuse. Uh, He also couldn't obtain a US visa because of a uh, conviction in the UK for marijuana possession, which kind of made touring in the world's biggest market a little bit difficult for the band, I'm assuming. We touch tricky. (laughs) So... Long st- we could go into great detail about Brian Jones, and I won't today because he doesn't play on this album. He left the band, Stroke was sacked from the band in June of 69. Less than a month later, he was discovered motionless at the bottom of his swimming pool. By the time the doctors arrived, uh, he was pronounced dead, and the coroner's report recorded a verdict of death by misadventure. Mick Jagger, in an interview with Rolling Stone in 1995, said of Brian Jones' death that I wasn't understanding enough about his drug addiction. No one seemed to know much about drug addiction. Things like LSD were all new. No one knew the harm. So, to replace Brian Jones, 20-year-old Mick Taylor was brought in. He contributed some tracks to the recording of Let It Bleed. That was released in November of 69. Ironically, on the same day as the final Madison Square Garden gig that comprises this album. So, the Stones played a free concert in Hyde Park in July of 69 to commemorate Brian Jones. Then, in later on in 69, they embarked on a North American tour from which this album um, is taken. During that tour, they had some quite strong support acts, including B.B. King, Ike and Tina Turner, and Chuck Berry. The tour itself ended in, I'm going to say, some controversy. I'll leave it there for now, because I'll definitely talk about that later on. So, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, in early December of 69, a bootleg recording of a concert uh, from Oakland in California was released under the name Liver Than You'll Ever Be. That sold loads and loads of copies. That forced Decker's hand, really, to say, no, we need to release an official live album. It was actually their second live album after 1966's Got Live If You Want It. Apparently, Mick Jagger wanted it to be a double album. He wanted disc one to be the disc that we end up hearing, you know, the the album that we end up hearing, and disc two to be uh, tracks from the support act, so B.B. King, Ike and Tina, etc. But apparently, Decca weren't interested, so Jagger in 1976 said Decca weren't interested. Who's B.B. King? Who are these people, they asked. They just didn't know who these acts were. So in the end, I gave it all up because it wasn't worth carrying on with. Um, Those tracks were eventually included on the 40th anniversary re-release of the record in 2009. I mean, that's such a shame that that it had to wait so long to to hear all that because I have have listened to... um, yeah, there's some there's some very good stuff going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've I have a, a separate I can see in a live album from Carnegie Hall, and it's fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and we well speaking of awful people, we could get into a lot with Ike Turner, but um, that's for another day. Yeah, I, I've got no, I've got nothing to add there. That <laughs> he was he was a terrible, terrible man. He was uh, okay, but so that is it on background. Uh, so unless you have anything else to add. No, no, I've got not, nothing else to add. Right, okay. In that case, how did you first discover Get Your Yaya's Out? So I've, I've known uh, Get Your Yaya's Out for quite for quite a while. The, as, we, as we have discussed many a time, the early 2000s <laughs> internet boom <laughs> enabled people to obtain back catalogues of entire artists. 
I obtained the back catalogue of the Stones and have <laughs> listened to this album quite a lot um, over the years, thanks to the internet. Thanks, internet. <laughs> Very deftly put. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so first listen for me, researching this clash. I do now own it on vinyl, however, uh, which is nice. So there you go. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. Yeah, it is a good one. Oh, but yeah, okay, there you go. So let's talk artwork, shall we? It's an interesting cover, isn't it? It is. It is a picture of Charlie Watts riding a donkey, wearing a t-shirt depicting a woman's breasts. So I don't know whether the donkey, like, because obviously it's in America and the donkey is a symbol of the, uh, is it the Democrats? Yeah, it's, it's the Democrats, isn't it? Yes, it is. So I don't know whether that's like a some some form of political statements or something that they were trying to get across or whether they just thought, Charlie Watts riding a donkey? Yeah, okay, sounds. <laughs> uh, well, so... Funny enough, we'll get into some of the political stuff a bit later on with one, on a couple of tracks. I don't know if that was if that was behind the thinking. Uh, what I do know is that the cover art uh, was a photograph taken by the legendary David Bailey. Oh, nice. Uh, so Charlie Watts himself explained in 2017 it was David who we worked with a lot in those days. I went to this place near where I used to live. It had a runway, an aerodrome. They brought the donkey along, put a drum on it. I was in my stage clothes and borrowed Mick's hat in one of them. David was up a ladder shooting down, then on the floor shooting up. That's about it. The only thing I do know is that uh, there was also a photo shoot on the M6 in Birmingham, where, again, they had Charlie Watts and Mick Jagger riding donkeys and, and all sorts of photos taken, but none of those pictures made it onto the onto the album cover. Apparently, the inspiration for the album title itself came from a Blind Boy Fuller song called Get Your Yas Yas Out. But yeah, that's it on artwork. Like you said, it's an interesting, it's an interesting piece of art. I mean, the um, the Gaza uh, boobies T-shirt <laughs> is uh, is a not so subtle play on the album title. I'm assuming. Yeah, I'm gu- I'm guessing that. But um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, I've got nothing. I've got nothing more to add about it. Okay, uh, in that case, let's go on to talking through the tracks, shall we? Not a bad opener. Not a bad opener at all. We start with Jumpin' Jack Flash. So, Jumpin' Jack Flash itself was a non-album single. It was recorded during the Beggar's Banquet sessions. Uh, It reached number one in the UK, Germany, the Netherlands, New Zealand and Australia. And it reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. So, Keith Richards has basically said that he and Jagger wrote the lyrics while staying at Keith Richards' country house. They were awoken one morning by the clumping footsteps of, of Keith's gardener, Jack Dyer, walking past the window. Mick Jagger asked what it was, and Keith responded, Oh, that's Jack. That's Jumping Jack. Uh, and, and there you go. A legendary song was born. Okay. I mean, sometimes when you find out like how they come up with songs or the, the kernel that they develop it from, sometimes it's really exciting and go, Oh, wow. That's a hell of a story. And sometimes it's so deliciously mundane. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're amazed that something like Jumping Jack Flash came from something so boring. Yep, agreed. Uh, and what a tune it is, as you said. Fucking hell. I mean, the Stones have, have quite the repertoire to open their, even by this point, to open their sets with. But Jumping Jack Flash, you know, we always talk about make a statement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we were talking about 
the clash last time that obviously Queen started with One Vision, which is a hell of an opener. Jumping Jack Flash is it's absolutely a clarion call. It's, it absolutely is, yeah. It's the you know the trumpets of Jericho. It's it's all going on. Yeah, and again, it's played at a thousand miles an hour. Right from the off, Jagger's on top form. But, and this, well, over the next two episodes, I'm going to be talking a lot about drummers, okay? I yeah. Fucking Charlie Watts just drives this forward. He was a phenomenal drummer, wasn't he? So, I mean, the hive mind comes comes together again. And, you know, it's not a surprise because my one of my first notes was, how fucking good does Charlie Watts mm. sound here? Yeah. Like, he, I mean, the band are dead tight anyway. And, you, you know... You expect it to, but Charlie Watts is such an amazing drummer. He is, and it's one of those weird things that, obviously, because he he's so he's so quiet and oh, sorry, he was so quiet and unassuming that compared to Richards and Jagger, that and Ronnie Wood when he joined the band as well, that he kind of melded into the background. Mm-hmm. But you know that that does him a massive disservice because the man was just a phenomenal drummer and is he one was. of the greatest rock drummers ever really well it didn't when he passed away didn't Mick Jagger basically say it was it was Charlie's band you know really uh, you know yeah. so yeah. yeah I mean incredible and, and he's fucking phenomenal on this track it's a brilliant opener as you said although it, it ends somewhat abruptly I'd be happy with a little more to be honest with you yeah I mean I'm usually the one to say yeah get, come on let's uh, let's get this finished um, now I could I could do with with more jumping jack flash to be honest. Yep. And then at the end, uh, Mick Jagger informs the crowd that he has bust a button on his trousers. Poor fella. <laughs> Shouldn't have had them so tight. <laughs> Indeed. Something that um, Robert Plant very much um, <laughs> into the seventies. Quite so. <laughs> Shall we move on? Let's move on to Carol. Yeah, so Carol, it's a cover of a Chuck Berry song. Uh, he originally released it in 1958. And you can't tell. <laughs> uh, indeed. Uh, so several artists have recorded live versions of Carol, uh, including the Beatles, and it was included on Live at the BBC. Okay. I mean, the song, it's so yeah, it's obviously a Chuck Berry song, and... Keith Richards is channeling Chuck Berry with every lick of, of his guitar through this. But this just fits right into a stone set like the piece of a jigsaw puzzle, doesn't it? Well, of course, because essentially this is this is the band's heritage. The, famously, the, how Jagger and Richards sort of got together was a shared love of blues music and yep. they kind of swapped swapped albums so they're they're they were essentially initially a r&b covers band Mm -hmm. so you know i'm not surprised that they can absolutely knock this out of the park because it is exactly where they've come from and that's the that's the beauty of the performance is that you can hear exactly where their sound developed from 100 percent. and interestingly there there's there's another parallel with the queen live at Wembley album because obviously they did mm-hmm. the the 50s rock and roll medley and, and there's a similar thing here isn't there yeah it sounds really really good only thing I'd say uh, having said that Jumping Jack Flash ends quite abruptly does this go on a little bit too long I mean Keith's really enjoying himself here uh, well it's it, it, 
So it, it's it is less than four minutes long. To be fair, so it's not it's not it's not overly long. I mean, we'll come back to that in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> but I just wonder, could it do without the last verse at all? I think that. So making the caveat that we know how legendary Chuck Berry is and everything like that is that some of his songs can be quite repetitive, and so. Yes. The, I, I understand where you're coming from with the the last verse. Like, could you do without it? Because you kind of got the song by that point. But if you're gonna do if you're gonna do Carol, then you might as well do the whole thing, really. So yeah, okay, I'm, I'm okay Fair with enough. it. But I get where you're coming from. I'm nitpicking a little bit. Fine. Um, Chuck Berry, another troublesome character of whom we've spoken before. Go <laughs> listen to our Pulp Fiction episode for more on that. <laughs> But yeah, two songs in, all good. I'm having a good time. Yeah, lovely time is occurring. Yeah. All right, should we go on to Stray Cat Blues? Yeah, let's do it. So this is from 1968 Beggar's Banquet. And according to Mick Jagger, it was uh, inspired by the Velvet Underground song Heroin. I can hear that. So one of the lyrics to this song is, I can see that you're 15 years old. No, I don't want your ID. And I can see that you're so far from home, but it's no hanging matter. It's no capital crime. And so at this point, I think it's time we talked about Bill Wyman. I mean, like, so I saw a, um, I saw a tweet from Caitlin Moran the other day where she was saying, like, Bill Wyman was going out with an underage girl yes. during the 80s and nobody made a thing of no, it. Exactly. So, on the 2nd of June, 1989, the then 52-years-old Bill Wyman married 18-year-old Mandy Smith, whom he had fallen in love with when, as Kevin alluded to earlier, she was 13, and according to Smith herself, had a sexual relationship with when she was 14. They separated two years later, and they finalised their divorce two years after that. So... According to Mandy Smith, at least, Bill Wyman confirmed nonce. Yep. Uh, so let's move on from that, shall we? I mean, it is just fucking wild that it's just never, it's never mentioned. It is fucking wild. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Why is it never mentioned? Come, like the, fucking, come the, on. Because like in on British TV recently, there's been. Um, a documentary series on which was My Life as a Rolling Stone, which generally was uh, pretty good. But there's absolutely no mention of this at all. Nope. It's just completely airbrushed. I mean, nope. also, some of the disgraceful treatments of Jagger and Richards towards uh, the women in their lives yes. as well. You know, Marianne Faithful and all that. You know, there's yep. there's some really bad stuff that... But, like, again, all airbrushed. So, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, we have not airbrushed it. We have aired it because uh, it needs to be aired. It's, um, yeah, all bad. Yeah. All right, let's move on, though. So despite that unpleasantness and without wanting to, you know, make light of things, it's a fucking great version of Stray Cat Blues, though, isn't it? It is. And I think you need this here because, I mean, I know they're not from the, like, because it's been put together. It's not actually from the same gig. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got to review it in a different way. But even as a listener, you kind of need this breather because it's been so blistering, the yes. start. 
that you need you need that a bit of a slower one just to calm it down a bit. And the guitar work from both Keith Richards and Mick Taylor, it's again fucking great. It is great. And ding, 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 ding. Hive mind again. I've said the same. I've said they are <laughs> they are in perfect sync here. They sound fantastic. This, and it's not the last time I'm going to say this either, it's got a real dive bar feel to it, this. Yeah, it feels dirty. It does, yeah. Real low-down, dirty blues. Exactly that. I mean, so you're right about taking it down in terms of the tempo but I would say we've started strongly with two you know up-tempo bangers I think this takes the level of the performance up a notch it feels like everyone by this point is 100% into their groove yeah we're all cooking now absolutely really really good great stuff shall we move on though yeah let's do it all right so the next track is love in vain and well it's a cover of a Robert Johnson song the Stones uh, had a studio version which they featured on 1969's Let It Bleed. And Keith Richards explaining why they uh, they played it. Said, for a time we thought the songs that were on that first album, so referring to King of the Delta Blues, were the only recordings Robert Johnson had made. And then suddenly, around 67 or 68, up comes this second bootleg collection that included Love in Vain. Love in Vain was such a beautiful song. Mick and I both loved it. And at that time, I was working and playing around with Graham Parsons. And I started searching around for different ways to present it. Because if we were going to record it, there was no point in trying to copy the Robert Johnson style or ways and styles. We took it a little bit more country, a little bit more formalised, and Mick felt comfortable with that. So it's in a similar way, I guess, although they sound completely different, in a mm-hmm. similar way to the way Cream took Crossroads and turned it into a massively up-tempo rock song. They have given this quite a, a bluegrass-type feel, I guess. Yeah, I com- I completely agree with that. The yeah, because I, I mean I've always liked this song from Let It Bleed, but it's this kind of it's the simplicity of the performance initially, and it really it accentuates and gives space for Jagger's brilliant vocal performance to it kind of shine through. Yep. Uh, so I've said, and this isn't a criticism, but I, I can sense a bit of a Johnny Cash inflection with Jagger's vocal on this. Hmm, okay. In 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 the way he's singing it, I say I don't mean that as as, as a criticism at all. I think it enhances the song. You know, the thing it starts off really soulful, really melancholic. But fucking hell, the centerpiece of this is Mick Taylor's slide guitar. Mm-hmm. Wow. What I'm also going to say as well. So just uh, slagged him off for uh, uh, nonsense around. But <laughs> like Bill Wyman's bass work is generally unfussy it does what it needs to on most stone songs you're not you're not really there for the bass work but i think it really comes into its own during this performance and he he is really good no i agree yeah i I, this is this is always one of my favorites on let it bleed too i i i think this version's even better than the studio Mm -hmm. version it's fucking great and it's that guitar that makes it for me it's absolutely wonderful and to come in to a band, so he's what? He's been in at this point for four or five months in the group. He's 20 years old, so he's very much the junior member. And to have the confidence to say, I'm going to take centre stage on this track. Fair play to you, Mick Taylor. Absolutely brilliant. So it's, I suppose this is the right time to, to talk about Mick Taylor. It's a really weird thing that... 
he's involved in like a really seminal period mm-hmm. of the Stones, and some would argue during their imperious period. You know that he's on Let It Bleed. He's on Exile on Main Street. Yeah. You know, he's that's not like you'd be happy with just that. He's obviously he's obviously on here. I'm pretty sure that he he was certainly responsible for really developing um it's only rock and roll as well. But but he's someone that that's never really spoken about. A bit like when we've talked about Mick Ronson before. Yeah. That when you think of the stones, like the early stones you think of um of Brian Jones. Then you kind of most people would probably think of Ronnie Wood, yeah, and and Mick Mick Taylor's period, despite it being so influential and so important, and they came out with some of their best stuff during this period. You've sticky fingers as well, yeah, you know. But he's he's just kind of entirely forgotten about in the in the canon. I th- you're right, and that is interesting. I, I think that's well, one of the reasons he left the band is because he said that he always felt like a, a junior member, a, a, you know, a, a, someone who was in the background, basically. And, and, and I think it is because... So Brian Jones is iconic because that was their rise to power. And obviously what happened with him, that will always be, a, you know, a, a, a very tragic tale. So he wouldn't be forgotten. Ronnie Wood, as you alluded to a bit ago, himself was a very big character. Whereas Mick Taylor wasn't. He was much more... He was much more shy, much more retiring. Is probably not the right word, but he was—he was—he had less of that extroverted. He's uh, not the showman. No, exactly. It was Mick and Keith, and I think that's possibly part of the reason why. I think, unless you are like us, music nerds who are going to do the reading and, and the background and stuff for this, you probably wouldn't even know that. They had Mick Taylor in between Brian Jones and Ronnie Wood. So I'm I'm sure I've heard my dad, uh, who obviously was knocking about at this time, that like refer to, oh yeah, that um that blonde haired lad that that like played with the stones for a bit. Well there you go. So like he's sort of known, but like not at the yep. same time. It's really weird. Yeah. So well we are here to give Mick Taylor much love because he thoroughly deserves it yeah. for this show for his time with the Stones and for this song. He's great. In particular, yeah, he is great. Absolutely right. Okay, shall we go on to Midnight Rambler? Lovely bit of gob iron. Oh my God, yes. Absolutely. Some brilliant, filthy Mick Jagger harmonica. Great stuff. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before of our collective love of the gob iron. And yep. You know, Mick Jagger's got a huge gob and he... <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's good at working that iron. Yeah, he is <laughs> absolutely right. So, Midnight Rambler, it's another one from Let It Bleed. It comes in at a modest nine minutes and five seconds. What do you think about the length of this track, Kev? I'm fine with it because, well, Midnight Rambler, like the song itself, again, off Let It Bleed, is... So seven it's, minutes. It's a good seven minutes, it, isn't it? Exactly. So you're only getting an extra two minutes and... If you if you're listening to the classic vinyl version, then it's the end of it's the end of side one. So yeah. I'm I'm fine with it. And like I've, I've always really liked this song. Anyway, it's yeah. it's a proper bluesy number that like really again harks back to their to their heritage. Really, yeah, it is. I agree. So I I, I love it. I've said yeah, okay, it's long, 
But I love the tempo changes. I love the drawn-out riffs. I love the self-indulgent solos. I, th- I think every single second of this is is great. Again, for me, it's got that filthy dive bar vibe to it. The last minute or two, actually, I think have got a real Roadhouse Blues sound to them. Mm-hmm. They are decidedly Doors-influenced uh, in, in the way they sound. I, everyone is absolutely on top of their game here. It's absolutely great. Yeah, so my note is, great way to end side one with an absolute tour de force from a band at the peak of their powers. I cannot disagree with anything you have said there. Um, I just want to talk briefly about about the song itself. So it's about a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And it, it, refers, it refers to things like the Boston Strangler and, and stuff throughout. I mean, it's a proper murder ballad. Yeah, The lyrics are somewhat brutal. You know, Nick Cave would be very proud, I think. Yeah, he's very much nodding, going, this is in my wheelhouse. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Jagger, uh, I referred to that Rolling Stone interview in 95. Here, here's another quote from that in relation to this song. He says, that's a song Keith and I really wrote together. We were on holiday in Italy, this very beautiful town called Positano for a few nights. Why we should write such a dark song in this beautiful sunny place, I really don't know. We wrote everything there. The tempo changes everything. And I'm playing the harmonica in these little cafes. And there's Keith with the guitar. I mean, imagine being on holiday in Italy and there's fucking Mick and Keith blurting out some absolutely filthy blues. Sorry, like, so I I was trying to picture in my mind uh, the beautiful sort of vista and uh, Mick and Keith playing. But because you said Mick and Keith, my brain instantly instantly went to Stella Street. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking of John Sessions and Phil Cornwell. Absolutely brilliant. Stella Street, one of the brilliant sort of underground counterculture comedies of the 90s on the BBC. Oh, it was so good. Fucking phenomenal Stella Street. And the much-missed John Sessions as well. Indeed. I'm sure it must be on YouTube somewhere. But yeah, the... uh... Mick and Keith's Corner Shop. Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we flip the disc over to side two, Kev? Let's go. All right. Well, uh, we start side two with a little-known song from the Beggar's Banquet album, Sympathy for the Devil. Although, before the song starts, there's a woman in the audience. I was about to say. She she really really wants wants to play Painted Black. (laughs) Play it, you devils. I know. (laughs) She really wants to hear Painted Black, doesn't she? Yeah. (laughs) Play it, you devils. That's weird, dear. Judas! (laughs) (laughs) This is not American. (laughs) Again, the customary uh, Dylan at the Free Trade Hall reference, which, which as I as I have said to you before, how the hell you did you did blood on the tracks, and there was no reference to that. I do apologise. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have no answer to that. I'm very sorry. I have let uh, you down. I have let our listeners down. But most importantly, I've let myself down. Hang your head in shame. And that's something I'm just going to have to deal with. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but they don't play Paint It Black, so the devils uh, betray the <laughs> woman in the crowd, um, and they play, uh, as I said, Sympathy for the Devil. It's not bad, this. Not bad at all. So it's a much, much more stripped-back performance than than the studio version. So gone are the percussion tracks and the hoo-hoo backing vocals. But what they do is they turn it into a really raw, funky rock and roll song. And then you have a face melter of a solo. Oh my God. 
Absolutely right. But again, I've, I've said that, that, that Keith Richards and Mick Taylor, they play off each other fantastically well yeah. throughout this. It's brilliant. This again, Bill Wyman's bass sounds absolutely massive here. Really chunky playing that rhythm. I mean, just just going back to the to Mick Taylor and Keith Richards, it's it's like counterpoint guitars. It's like mm-hmm. dueling banjos. Mm-hmm. It's just fucking great. It is. But as always, Charlie Watts is in the background holding everything together. Exactly, because the, the, as you say, like we've we've barely spoken about him, and every song here, he is the absolute glue. He is the thing that well. See, glue feels like you're damning him with faint praise. That yeah. it's more than that. He is the bricks and mortar yes. that they're able that's, to to build around. I think that's a really a really good way of describing it. Absolutely right. He 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 is. He provides the foundation for everyone else in the band, in the band to to riff off him. Uh, and yeah, phenomenal. Really, really phenomenal. I just want to again just talk just talk to the song itself. So I think one of the themes of many of the songs on Beggar's Banquet is basically the the end of flower power. The summer of love is over. The the counterculture has been replaced by something much darker, much more sinister. And whilst that's a lot more pronounced on a song we'll come and talk about later on, I think you can hear it coursing through the lyrics here as well. So obviously Jagger, you know he is the devil and he is explaining how the devil brought about so many of humankind's most gruesome Mm -hmm. moments this isn't peace and love this isn't blues music this is something else this is something as i said darker uh and i just think it's an interesting uh there's a lot going on at this time in america well well, there's a lot going on going on in America, and relatively soon after this, you have Altamont. Well, we'll come on to that. <laughs> okay, I, so we, we'll absolutely come on to Altamont. Don't worry. Uh, but you've had the Manson family murders. You've had the DNC convention in Chicago the year before, which again I'll I'll mention in a little bit. This is a reflection on the times. Martin Luther King's been shot. Yeah, Malcolm X. Yeah, you know, is it, I, I can't remember has Kent State happened by this point or is that in seventy? I don't know what that is. So, I so tell Kent you. State was when uh, the National Guard came. So there was a, a an anti-Vietnam War protest at a university. They brought out the National Guard and they shot they shot students. So there was wow. I don't know when that was. <laughs> I can't remember how many died, um, but the, there was a number, and so it's it's part of that, as you say, the end, the end of the summer of love, and you've had the Detroit in, riots since, yeah, 60, you know, 60, so yeah, yeah, sixty eight is uh, Detroit city burning. So there's all that going on, and then Beggar's Banquet comes out in sixty eight, and I I just think there's 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 some themes in this which sort of, as I said, h- highlight that you know, the, at times they are a changing as. Uh, someone else once said yeah uh yeah it's a brilliant version i really like it okay let's um let's go on to the next one so next track is live with me uh, another one from let it bleed this was the first song that mick taylor recorded with the group apparently the lyrics to live with me were cited as the reason why the london back choir asked not to be credited for their performance on you can't always get what you want 
Is that right? Yeah, although Wikipedia does claim that is citation needed. But there's, I mean, there's nothing ridiculously no, controversial it's... in those lyrics. It, you know, it's 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 a song about someone who's a bit of a lech, who's a bit of a bastard, but there's nothing massively bad in there, is there? I mean, I'd, I've never picked up that it was particularly egregiously bad. Nope, but there you go. Okay. Uh, what do you make of the performance, though? So I think it's a good performance. I think the the rhythm section absolutely boss it though. Um, again, yep. Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman drive drive this along. That I would, I mean, I'm going to probably give away give away what I might say later. But of what we've heard so far, it's probably the weakest. Yeah, I've said it's very very well performed. Yes, the rhythm section are are what come across as again the the, the foundation, the bricks and mortar of as you said of of everything around it. It's not an especially remarkable song. It's not a standout on Let It Bleed for me. It's not a standout on this album either. It's not to say I dislike it, but okay, fine. All right, whatever. Do you know what I mean? No, no. I get, if this was a, a recording of the entire gig, this might be your piss song. It's definitely a piss song. Yeah. <laughs> or, or is it? Or is it? Because we then move on to another Chuck Berry cover, Little Queenie. So I really enjoyed this. Okay. Because it's pure unadulterated rhythm and blues. And with the piano work, there's like a bit of a uh, bit of a little Richard vibe going on. A mm-hmm. little bit of um again, someone someone else known for noncing about uh Jerry <laughs> Lee Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> uh you know, so I, I did really I did really enjoy it. Two things. It's really interesting choice to have a second Chuck Berry cover on your live album. Fine in the concert itself, when you're probably playing, I don't know, between 15 and 20 songs generally in a gig, aren't you? But to stick two Chuck Berry covers on your live album, when, as you said, even by this time, in 69, their own back catalogue is pretty crammed full of bangers that they could have chosen. It's really well performed. I agree with everything you've said about it, about the the, 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 the no-nonsense rhythm and blues feel to it. I think it would be a great bridge to the next song if it were a couple of verses and then done. Mm-hmm. But it's over four and a half minutes. It's too long. I mean, it, it is a surprise that they include this, given that they could, if they want, they could play Gimme Shelter. Mm-hmm. They could play uh, Let It Bleed. You know, there's 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 a few songs that they could um, potentially potentially choose to play, but they they don't. So I, I get what you mean. That or, or like you said, they, they probably did play them, but they don't choose to include them on yeah. on the live album. You know, it's uh, to me, this is a well. I've said mid gig low, but you know, mid album low uh, between the last song and this one. I, it's really well performed. If it was two and a half minutes, I'd be well into it. But by the end of it, I'm a little bit bored, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Okay, uh, that boredom does not last, however, because we then go on to the penultimate track, which is Honky Tonk Women. I love this song. It's fucking great, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> so again, we're going to talk about Charlie Watts, surely. Yes. Because his drumming in this is so important. It is so important. It's great. So, what's interesting, the studio version of this starts with percussion. 
whereas mm-hmm. this starts with the guitar. So they've changed it around a little bit in the in, in, in the intro. But yeah, like it's just it's great. I, I can't say I can't, I don't. Charlie Watts is brilliant on it. Everyone's brilliant on it. It sounds tight as fuck. Jagger's fantastic. The guitars again are great and perfectly in sync. Uh, it, why is Little Queenie over a minute longer than this? Do it the other way around. Make this the one that you drag out because this is what I want to hear. Yeah, it's you know it's it's a it's a good point. All right, just a little bit about the song itself. It's it was another non-album single released in July of '69. It got to number one everywhere, basically UK, US, Australia, Denmark, Ireland, New Zealand, and even Switzerland. This went to number one. So. Uh, I said non-album single. There is a, for me at least, a phenomenally enjoyable bluegrass version on Let It Bleed, which they called Country Honk. Oh, yeah. Closes Let It Bleed, doesn't it? No, it's mid. It's mid album. Yeah, it is. You're right, sorry. So, that version featured Brian Jones in what would be his last recording session with the band. The more famous single version, which is uh, effectively what they play here, Featured Mick Taylor and, as we know, had a very, very different sound. So Keith Richards on that said, the song was originally written as a real Hank Williams, Jimmy Rogers, 1930s style country song. And it got turned around to this other thing by Mick Taylor, who got a completely different feel, throwing it off the wall another way. And again, to our earlier conversation about why is Mick Taylor not not more lauded. He clearly had a massive impact on their sound at this time. He wasn't just there to play the chords and make up the numbers. Yeah, he wasn't like a session musician. You no, know. exactly. He was an integral part of the band. And if what we get on Honky Tonk Women is because of him, then hats off to you, sir, because as you said, I fucking love this tune. Yeah, chapeau. Uh, but yeah, it's too short. I want more of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could, I could always do with more of Honky Tonk Woman, so, you know. All right, shall we go on to the closer? Again, not a bad song. No, not a bad song at all. So, Street Fighting Man, uh, another one from Beggar's Banquet. Uh, it closes Beggar's Banquet, I think. I think, it, yeah, I think you're yeah. right. So, apparently it was originally titled and recorded as Did Everyone Pay Their Dues, containing uh, the very same music, but very different li- lyrics about adult brutality. So, Mick Jagger allegedly wrote it about Tarek Ali after he attended a 1968 anti-war rally at the US Embassy in London, and during which mounted police attempted to control the crowd of some 25,000 people. Also, it was uh, inspired by the rising violence among student rioters on the Paris left bank, and in that Rolling Stone interview that I mentioned earlier. Jagger himself says it was direct inspiration. It was a very strange time in France, but not only France, but also in America because of the Vietnam War and those endless disruptions. I thought it was a very good thing at the time. There was all this violence going on. I mean, they almost toppled the government in France. De Gaulle went into this complete funk, as he had in the past, and he went and sort of locked himself in his house in the country. And so the government was almost inactive. So there's that direct inspiration I mentioned earlier the 1968 Democratic National Congress in, in, in Chicago, which we talked about. Was it when we did the MC5? Yes. So uh, there's obviously parallels with that. Uh, and again, this is where the themes of Beggar's Banquet really are laid bare. As we've just said, when we're going through sympathy for, for the devil, the world is changing. It's, you know, the summer of love is over, baby. So hold still while I club you over the head with my truncheon. 
Well, exactly. Like the beat, the Beatles aren't aren't singing uh, "All You Need Is Love." Their mm. happiness is a warm gun. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, as for the as for the performance, I, I it is absolutely raucous. It is. Jagger sounds positively caustic. There's guitars ripping and shredding all over the place. But again, sorry guys, I'm going to repeat myself. Charlie Watts is the centerpiece of the whole thing. You know, he never ever takes the attention away from the rest of the band, but he always adds that little bit of finesse, I guess, that mm-hmm. you've come to expect. So I'm going to read because I made my note, my initial notes, sort of verbatim as I was as I was listening to it. As I, it's well performed, but possibly lacks the furious ferocity you would expect. Dot 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 dot. Actually, that's balls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the way this ends has all the fire that I abs- absolutely expect of this song. Um, yeah, that's a load of bollocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad you've. I'm glad you recanted because I was going to say, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I I love this. It's, I love Street Fighter Mind. Anyway, this version is just bang. It is like I, th- I think initially because you expect the full punch in the face of Street Fighter Man, and you don't you don't get it straight away because they hold it they hold enough back exactly. and then they then they absolutely do you yeah absolutely um, so this has been covered by loads and loads of people uh, including uh, Oasis as the B side to All Around the World I think the least said about that version the better how many um overtracks were on it <laughs> all of them <laughs> uh, uh, uh and more enjoyably by rage against the machine on their 2000 covers album renegades yeah it, it is a, it is an enjoyable uh not as enjoyable as their version of maggie's farm though no because that is fucking perfect I mean, that is furious ferocity. It is indeed furious ferocity. Yeah, this is a great way to close the show. It's a great way to close the album. I want more. Indeed. But they won't, the devils. They (laughs) they don't even play Paint It Black. (laughs) (laughs) She must have been absolutely fucking fuming. No, I'm not buying a T-shirt as I'm coming out. You can fuck off. (laughs) Right. That's it, though. That's the end of the album. Shall I go on to some reviews? Yeah, let's do it. All right, only a couple, um, and one of them's Nobby. So, uh, very quickly, uh, Lester Bangs, in his contemporary review for The Rolling Stone, dubbed it the best rock concert ever put on record. Two things there, Lester. One, it's not a rock concert. It's an amalgam of three different rock concerts. And secondly, there's loads of overdubs on it. Um, Other than that, I completely agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nobby so he was unusually succinct actually Robert Criscow although he still couldn't resist making it all about him uh, when he wrote these words let's strap in (sighs) yeah I was at the garden when this was being recorded and I had a great time but despite Mick Taylor's guitar on Love in Vain and the spruced up Live With Me, there's not a song here that isn't better somewhere else, including the two Chuck Berry covers and the one-act Midnight Rambler. Ah, piss off, Nobby. Welcome back. He's such a cock. <laughs> but it's just that starting, is it? I was there. I, I was there. Sorry. Look, I've still got my ticket. You know, he's the sort of fellow that's still got his fucking Glastonbury wristband on three months after he's been to Glastonbury. No, he's worse than that. 
he would he would be the type, you know, like the free guardian guy thing. <laughs> would use that as his lanyard. I don't use the actual lanyard. I've got the guardian. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Never change, Nobby. Never change. <laughs> right, that's about all I have on reviews. So, shall we go on to the legacy? Yeah, because, I mean, did they just disappear off? <laughs> well, I'm not going to chart the entire history of the Rolling Stones past this point because, you know, even I'm not going to go into that much <laughs> But there are a couple of things I want to pick up. So, firstly, just back to the tour itself and how it ended. Uh, and you've mentioned Altamont before, uh, and that's what I want to talk about now, basically. So, on the 6th of December, 69, they played a set at the uh, infamous Altamont Speedway Free Festival. And nothing happened. It, it, was, <laughs> it was really quiet. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to let Wikipedia pick the story up from here, and this will take a few minutes, but I think it's important. Okay, so the reason that they played the gig was during the tour, a lot of fans and a lot of journalists felt ticket prices were too high. So to respond to that criticism, the Stones said, right, let's put on a free concert in San Francisco. So the Altamont Raceway uh, was chosen at the suggestion of the then owner of the Speedway, a local businessman called Dick Carter. It was due to take place on December the 6th. That, however, was a late switch from the night of Thursday, December the 4th, which is when it was originally planned to be. Uh, That speedy change of date resulted in numerous logistical problems, including a lack of facilities such as portable toilets and medical tents. It also created a problem for the stage design because it had originally supposed to be somewhere else, actually, at Sears Point. So at Altamont, the, the stage was at the bottom of a slope, the Rolling Stones stage manager uh, for that tour, the, uh, I assure you, legitimately t- uh, named Chip Monk. <laughs> <laughs> he explained that the stage was one metre high and it was top of a hill. So all the audience pressure was back upon them. Uh, because the stage was so low, members of the pacifist Hell's Angels were asked to surround the stage to provide security. And everything went off without a hitch, and uh, <laughs> there were no problems at all. So, by some accounts, the Hells Angels were hired as security by the Stones' management on the recommendation of both the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, who also played at that free gig and had previously both used the Hells Angels for security. They were allegedly paid with $500 worth of beer, That story has been denied by some parties. According to the Stones' road manager, Sam Cutler, the only agreement there ever was, the Hells Angels would make sure nobody tampered with the generators, but that was the extent of it. There was no way they're going to be the police force or anything like that. That's all bollocks. A Hells Angels member, uh, Bill Sweet William Fritch, he recalled an exchange that he had with Cutler at a meeting before the concert, where he said, we don't police things, we're not a security force. We go to concerts and enjoy ourselves and have fun. Cutler apparently then said, what about helping people out? You know, giving directions and things. And then uh, Fritz replied, sure, we can do that. And then when Cutler asked how they'd like to be paid, according to Sweet William, he replied, we like beer. 
So, by the time the performance started, Jagger had already been punched in the head by one of the audience within seconds of getting out of the helicopter they arrived in. And he was visibly intimidated by the unruly situation, which has been exacerbated by uh, the problems with the facilities, etc., that I mentioned a second ago. So, the third song they played was Sympathy for the Devil. Mick Jagger basically said, uh, calm down, be cool down there, don't push around. Uh, A fight erupted during Sympathy for the Devil at the foot of the stage. Stones paused their set while the Hells Angels restored order. After a lengthy pause and another appeal for calm, the band restarted the song and continued their set uh, with less incident until the start of Under My Thumb. And at that point, some of the Hells Angels got into a scuffle with 18-year-old Meredith Hunter, an African-American man, uh, when he attempted to get on stage with other fans. One of the Hells Angels grabbed Hunter's head, punched him, and chased him back into the crowd. After a minute's pause, Hunter returned to the stage, where, according to the producer of the documentary Gimme Shelter, Porter Bibb, Hunter's girlfriend, Patty Brederhoft, found him and tearfully begged him to calm down move back into the crowd with her but he was reportedly enraged and irrational and according to her so high he could barely walk rock scully who could see the audience clearly from the top of a truck said of hunter i saw what he was looking at that he was crazy he was on drugs and he he had murderous intent there was no doubt in my mind that he intended to do terrible harm to make or somebody in the rolling stones or somebody on that stage so after the initial scuffle with the hell's angels that i talked about hunter tried to get on stage and as can be seen in concert footage he returned to the front of the crowd and drew a revolver from his jacket hell's angel alan passaro seeing draw seeing hunter draw the revolver drew a knife from his belt charged at hunter powering the pistol with his left hand stabbing him twice killing him in Hunter's autopsy, it was confirmed that he had been high on methamphetamine when he died. Passaro was arrested and tried for murder in the summer of 71, but was acquitted after a jury viewed concert footage showing Hunter brandishing the revolver and concluded that Passaro had acted in self-defence. The Stones were aware of the skirmish, but not the stabbing, some people say. So, Jagger, in the editing of the Gimme Shelter documentary, says, "'You couldn't see anything, it was just another scuffle.'" But it soon became apparent they could see something of what had happened because they stopped playing mid-song and Jagger was heard to be calling into his microphone, we've got someone really hurt here, is there a doctor? After a few minutes they began playing again and eventually completed their set. Jagger is uh, said to have said that they all agreed that if they abandoned the show at that point the crowd would become even more unruly, perhaps degenerating into a full-scale riot. So I've spoken an awful lot there, and Kev's been waiting very, very patiently to get something in. I just wanted to read, again, that is basically what Wikipedia describes of the incident. So, yeah. Um, so the only thing I've got about, because there's, you can read a lot a lot more about this, and you can watch Gimme Shelter for, for one now, which... which you know, they didn't release it for a long for a long time. No, no. Ostensibly, because um, it's edited in a way that makes them look good, and uh, they got a lot of criticism for that. That basically they released a, the argument was that they released a concert film to make themselves look good, but they were responsible for the disaster that happened. Partly, at least. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of 
an attempt to wash their reputation. That was what it was seen as. But I just wanted to, because I wasn't aware of this, but now when I think about it, it yeah, it makes perfect sense. So Altamont is referred to in the song American Pie by Don McLean. Oh, right. So there's a reference to Jack Flash. There's a reference to uh, Candlestick. So that was a reference to San Francisco Candlestick Park. There's a reference to the devil, an enraged spectator watching something on stage, and an angel born in hell. Mm. So yeah, there's there's quite a few um, references, and yeah. McLean basically said that it was essentially Altamont was a culmination of the ten year period that started with the plane crash killing Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper, during which things uh, headed in the wrong direction and life became less idyllic, and culminated in Altamont. So. Yeah, I I hadn't ever realised that, but it it makes perfect sense when you read it like that. So, just reflecting, like, given what we've already talked about, some of the themes that the Beggar's Banquet album at least talks about, and what Street Fighting Man talks about, and Jagger's reflections on that. Like, okay, I'm not saying that it was necessarily the band themselves that said, let's hire the Hells Angels as security, but fucking hell... You are a band that is, let's say, associated with the flower power movement. You know that the mood in the States is becoming increasingly fraught and violent. And why the fuck have you got the Hells Angels as security at your gig? Well, for fuck's sake, like, you know what's going on in the world. Because as you mentioned before, the Street Fighter Man is is written about the riot mm-hmm. that happens at Tavistock Square mm-hmm. by the American Embassy in protest yep. of Vietnam. So it's, yep. it, you've got somebody within your entourage has got the Hells Angels. Like, <laughs> Not the lovely, cuddly, bunny people to, to come do security. Like, Should have got the hell Satans. <laughs> <laughs> then they'd have settled it chopper to chopper. <laughs> so, you know, you've given a motorcycle gang, they're doing your security, and as payment, you've given a mail. Exactly, exactly. that's the fucking maddest thing about it. Oh, have a load of beer. Yeah, because that's going to go well. Oh, and don't worry, because the crowds like hopped up on um, on amphetamines. So you know that's all going to go well, lah. Uh, absolutely nuts. And then, like you said, they okay. You you can perhaps see the logic in them deciding to continue playing, mm-hmm. but don't fucking release it as a film. Yeah, just all that back. Exactly. Somebody, somebody literally died. Yes, exactly. But um, as a as another coder, so in 2008, a former FBI agent asserted that some members of the Hell's Angels had conspired to murder Mick Jagger in retribution for the Rolling Stones' lack of support following the concert and the negative portrayal of the Angels in the Gimme Shelter film. The conspirators reportedly used a boat to approach a residence where Jagger was staying on Long Island. The plot failing when the boat was nearly sunk by a storm. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not something to laugh about, but I just have. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think the I think the fact that it nearly sank um, was yeah. like, oh, okay, then we won't murder it. Uh, excellent. The only other thing I want to talk about in terms of the Rolling Stones' legacy 
is that in 1972, the Stones set up a holding company, Promo Group, with offices in the Netherlands and the Caribbean. Which means that, according to a 2017 article in the Independent newspaper, the Stones reportedly paid just 1.6% tax on their earnings of £242 million over the previous 20 years. If we slate you two for it, we're going to fucking slate the Stones for it too. Pay your fucking taxes. Damn right. Like you might have, you might own an island or some kind of shite like that. Whatever you do, like pay your fucking tax. Absolutely. You were domiciled somewhere, you bastards. Contribute. Absolutely right. Uh, That is all I have to say on Legacy because we all know who the Stones are. Yeah, they're they're a fairly well-known band. Yeah. All right, okay. Anything else from you? Or should we do best song, worst song? Let's go straight into best song, worst song. Sound. All right, then. What is your best song? What is your worst song? So I'll go worst song. And I think we're probably both going to come down somewhere on the two. As as we've sort of indicated as we talked about it. So for me, weakest song was probably Live With Me because I enjoyed Little Queenie a bit more. But it is the, the lull. In the album, mm-hmm. oh, it's a fucking toughie though. Come, do you know what? I know what my I know what my best song is. Like, as there is so many great moments, and Midnight Rambler is great. The opening and the ending are great. Honky Tonk Woman's great, but despite the fact they don't play Painted Black, is the sympathy <laughs> for the fucking devil is great. Okay, fair enough. That's a good choice. Uh, so I'll do my worst song first. So I've gone the other way. I've gone Little Queenie. Uh, it's just unnecessary in, in its length and the fact that for its inclusion on the album, two Chuck Berry covers, I, I don't really get it. So yeah, that's my worst song. My best, uh, having just criticised a cover version as my worst song, I'm going to pick a cover version as my best song. There are great moments, all of which you have just mentioned, but Love in Vain, for Mick Taylor's guitar solo alone, it deserves the accolade of my favourite song on this album. It's a fucking great performance. It's a really good choice. All right, that's about all I have on that, though. Okay. I think we're done for this week. Other than, well, just remind people what you're going to be taking us through next week. So next week, I will be taking us through uh, 1970s uh, Live at Leeds by The Who. Brilliant. Okay. Until then, however, Kevin, how can people keep in touch with us on the socials and what has been going on in Twitterland? So, as we are taking slightly longer to uh, do our recordings, I have many things that I could have brought up. So, <laughs> I could have brought up the fact that Elon Musk is basically being or Shanghai into actually buying Twitter <laughs> and that going well. Obviously, the crypto market being being proven to absolutely definitely isn't a Ponzi scheme. Oh, wait, it is a Ponzi scheme. (laughs) But I cannot ignore this. I don't know if you saw Twitter earlier this week when there was the hashtag Prince of Pegging. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, go on. (laughs) Where it is alleged that... A member of the royal family very much likes being pegged. And I will trust for our listeners to Google those things themselves. Google it yourself. Yeah. We're not ever going to say which royal family either. No, because 
uh, we don't want to be sued. <laughs> but yeah, Excellent. Prince of Pegan. <laughs> and it's Excellent. not that he really likes Peggy Lee. No. <laughs> or the song Peggy Sue by Buddy Hardy and the Crickets. Oh dear, lovely stuff. You didn't see that coming, did you? Nope, I did not. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, whilst they are searching for the hashtag Prince of Pegging, Indeed. what else can they do? So whilst you are searching for that hashtag, you could go to our Twitter page, uh, which is at Clash Album. If you like carefully, carefully curated quality content, uh, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school, you can uh, sign, sign Tim up for some kind of pegging website um, <laughs> via albumclash at gmail.com. Sexy. <laughs> Yeah, please do all those things. And also, please uh, subscribe to the show. Please leave a rating, preferably five stars. Leave a review telling us how great we are or how shit we are. As long as you left a five-star review, we don't care at all. We're all about the stars. Hey, and if you if you want to make a recommendation to us about what we should do, please do so because we would, we would really like to hear from, from you. We would very much like to hear from you. Yeah, okay, but... All I have to say for now is, in this particular timeline, I am Tim. And once upon a time, I was careful. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Take care, guys. Ta-da. Ta-da. Take care.